Hey, this is Joshua Brown, lead pastor here at Dream Church. Thank you for tuning in to the podcast, and we hope you enjoy this week's message. Let me read um, some stuff that I have been uh, writing. And um, I just, this is a good way for me to collect my thoughts. It's also a good on-ramp for me to chase a lot of rabbits. So um, here we go. But uh, 2 Samuel 6 is where we'll end up um, in a few hours. Just kidding. All right. There is so much um, chaos currently in our world. So much chaos in our world. Um, 2020 was the year of clear vision. Okay? 2020 was the year of clear vision. I think that when we heard the whispers of him unveiling the opaque in 2020, we were excited because we thought that meant seeing more of Jesus and his kingdom than ever before. Y'all with me? Two people. 20, so 2020 was the year of clear vision. I think, and if I'm being honest with you, this is what I heard when he began to talk to us about the year of 2020. Now, remember, I'm not usually one of these people that just jump on stuff like this, okay? Like 2020, oh, yeah, 2020 vision. That's not me. I don't usually roll like that. Um, But the Lord began to show me a lot of stuff around this, and not just me, a lot of other people as well. And uh, and when I started thinking through um, what that mic looked like, I thought we were going to go into 2020, and it was going to be like angels dancing around and, you know, all this other craziness, Right? However, we get into 2020, and I think I'm putting it mildly when I say this has been the most chaotic year ever, at least in any of our lifetimes. I mean, none of us were alive in 1918 um, when, you know, the, what was it, the bubonic plague or black plague or whatever it was called, something crazy, uh, when that went through. None of us were alive back then, but uh, it's just been a crazy year. Um, the economy's done like this. I mean, it's just been awful um, in one sense, if you're looking at it in the natural, okay? So there's one problem with the thinking that him telling us 2020 was going to be the year that we see the kingdom like never before. There's one issue with this. One slight yet crucial miscalculation that we have made is this. We forgot that for centuries, the church and thus the culture, the church influences, has been in the mask-making business. Twenty twenty is going to be the year. It's going to be the year. One thing we forgot: all we've done for centuries is manufacture mask in the broad stroke of the church. We've become world-class manufacturers of what we think others want to see and, to be frank, what we ourselves want to see. We learned covering up someone's issues was a lot easier and less painful than ever actually walking someone through true transformation. So be careful what we wish for. For us to see him clearly, we'll first have to see our religion clearly. Why? Because religion is what kept us from seeing him in the first place. 
If Acts 2 unlocked everything for us, which it did, why are we still 2,000 years later begging for revival? You ever think about some of this stuff? This is 2020. Acts 2 happened in the first century. So if that happened in the first century, how is it even plausible that 2,020 years later, we're begging God to send revival? He did in Acts 2. So us not seeing the manifestation of revival is not because it's not there. It's been there for 2,000 years. It's not because it's not there. It's because there is something blocking our view of what never left. And I'll, I'll label what that thing is. It's called religion. It's not because he retreated. It's because we settled for convincing people we're Christians rather than looking so much like Jesus that there's no denying we're Christian. That just felt good, so let me say it one more time. It's not because he retreated, though that is taught wrongly, It's because we settled for convincing people we're Christians rather than looking so much like Jesus that there's no denying we're Christian. I don't have to convince anybody I'm a Christian, ever. Why? Because they look at me and they see Christ. You know, like that phrase Christian, you know know where that came from? Christ in Christian, it's you are of Christ, right? Just like we're an American because we live in America. So that's what that phrase, Christian, identifies you with Christ. In Antioch, they were called Christians in the book of Acts for the first time because they were so glorious, society had to label them something other than them. Right? So it was never a religion. The religion was there. Jews had carried that religion from the very beginning. It was not a new religion. He was establishing a new family. Right? So here's a case in point. This week and race, you have two groups. Man, why do I, why, why do I, why do we keep doing this? There, we have two groups, groups of people right now in the country. I'm not afraid to talk about this. I know a lot of people are afraid to talk about this. I am not afraid to talk about this because it's got to be dealt with. And I'm the one that's going to deal with it. So you have two groups of people right now. I can just hear the typing. Those who are willing, listen, those who are willing to stare racism in the eye until it's conquered. And those who, like many who have gone before us, want to sweep it under the rug and say it's not that big of a deal. That's what we have two groups. One requires us to remove the mask, look at the nastiness behind the mask, and fix the authentic man through Jesus and never have to hide behind a mask again. 
Number one, the other allows the mask of religion to stay intact and we live to trick another day. Y'all just so happy today. Don't y'all, don't y'all see this? I'm not on social media, so I don't know what social media, what's going on on social media except what other people have shared with me. But just what I see in the news today, you have people who are saying it's not right for Ellington to be looked at different than me when if you completely erase the color of our skin, we're exactly the same. That's not right. It's not. Ellington has just as strong of a relationship with Jesus as I have, and yet the world, not the whole world, but a lot of facets of the world sees him differently. Why? Not because he acts different, not because he's any less glorious, but simply because of how he looks. And that is not okay. It's not. And we as a church have been given the opportunity to step into this moment and show the world what it looks like to be Jesus conquering a situation. And it's not, you know what grace is? I taught this years ago and people, amen till the cows come home. Here we go, right? Some of y'all about to eat your amen, all right? So what is grace? What's grace? Grace, I'm gonna steal this from Damon Thompson. Grace is not God turning a blind eye to your sin. That's called avoidance. It's actually maybe called ignorance. So that's not what he does. He, you don't sin and then God say, okay, we'll just forget that ever happened and we'll just kind of move on, right? Here's what grace is. Grace is him staring your issue right in the eye until that thing goes That's what grace is. So when he's dying on the cross and blood is pouring out and he's looking at people all around him, he stares them in the eye and says, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. And in that moment, he gave grace for them to step into a new era, which is sin no longer has a hold on you or sin no longer is a barrier between who you are and where he is because of what Jesus did there's no longer a barrier, but now you've, you've been mingled into the very Messiah that died on a cross. So he, he dies not to draw you close. He dies to mingle you into him. What? So when he does that, he stares our sin in the eye. And because he stares our sin in the eye, sin is no longer an issue for us, right? Right? I'm not saying people don't sin anymore. I'm saying sin is incapable of keeping you from Jesus anymore. So, so what we do in society is we have an opportunity to show people what grace looks like, which is I'm going to stare this thing in the eye until it's gone. Or we can show people what the Pharisees did, which is this. One of those sent an entire family of believers into what no eye has seen, one of those is no longer in existence by name. It's not called Pharisees anymore. It's just called denominations. But, that, but it's the same thing, I guess. But So what we're seeing 
this is not what I'm talking about today, by the way. I just want to sit in this because I feel it. I feel it. I feel it tense. I feel it. So I'm going to just sit in it for a second. All right. Because what we're seeing today is you got one group of people who are doing this, and you got one group of people who are doing this. Here's the sad part. You know the ones who are doing this? Most of the ones who don't even believe in God. And you know what most of the church is doing? Hiding under a pillow. Praying this is over soon. I, I mean, I've, I've, seen a, I've seen a couple of pastors praying for hurricanes because at least that would give us something else to talk about. Man, I mean, I, <laughs> Oh man. But but you know what I'm saying? I, I mean, I've never seen Big Master, I've never seen somebody so happy to talk about hurricane season in my life. He it was like Christmas. Thank you, Lord, it's hurricane season. <laughs> Finally, we can stop talking about other stuff. But I'm telling you, at some point, why hasn't it been dealt with? Because nobody stared at it long enough for it to be dealt with. At some point, somebody goes like this, and when they do that, it just keeps going along. Somebody's got to take the mask off. All right. So 2020 started ugly. Why? Because the mask is starting to come off. But I don't see this as a sign the end is near. I see this as an initiator for everything Yahweh has promised us. And this is the phrase he gave me. I wrote all these notes at like midnight last night. So, um, so one, I haven't slept a lot, but two, these are fresh. This is the phrase he gave me. He said, you're right on track. I wrote, I literally, I wrote this. I see this as an initiator for everything Yahweh promised us. And I heard a whisper, you're actually right on track. This was, this was, I knew this was coming from the very beginning. You haven't gone to the left or right. You're right where you need to be. Now that we see behind the mask, I'll pose the most frequently asked question of 2020, which is what's next? The, the question I've heard people say, especially over the past couple of weeks, but really over the past three months is, okay, like what's, what do we do now? What's next? I believe it's reversing the way that we have operated as the body of Christ. I'm going to explain this. We're always playing catch up to the world around us. Whether it be in music, whether it be in art, whether it be in design, whether it be in preaching style, etc. We're always, I used to say this back when I was in, I don't know, the system, I guess you would call it that. I used to always say this. The church is five years behind everybody else, always. I used to always complain about that, which is part of my issue that I was even complaining in the first place. But that tells you about my life before Jesus grabbed me. But we, we were always, it seemed like that. So the, the, uh, the world would move into a pop punk music phase. About five years later, the church would move into a pop punk worship phase. We still haven't caught up with design I mean, like, uh, that's partially joking, but I mean, like, you know what I mean? We st we st there's still stuff we haven't caught up with. 
But it seems like the church is always playing defense, watching what the culture is doing, and then adapting to create an inroad for people in the culture to comfortably come into a church that looks really similar to what they're used to. So, the, so the, the culture started playing songs that were love songs that I guess you could attach as Christian or maybe not Christian, and the church started playing those. Wow, because it's easy. It's easy. If a song can be played on pop radio and Christian radio and no one know the difference, there's a good chance it ain't about Jesus. I, was, I used to be in, let me just, let me just, y'all want an insight into a lot of the Christian music world? Here you go, because I used to be in it. You ready? <laughs> Most Christian artists are Christian artists because they will make more money on Caleb than they ever would trying to be a secular artist, and that is the only reason they're a Christian artist. So when you go home and listen to 89.7, is that what it is, 89.7? Just remember my words. All right, some of them are legit, I'm just playing. Um, but that's, that's the conversation I had with, a lot, with record label people. I never made it, but that was the conversation is, you could be a mainstream, you know, artist, but you're never going to make it. There's millions of people want to do that. Or, or you could be a Christian artist and churches will eat that alive. And I said, sign me up. So I would play in bars one night and lead worship in a church the next day, playing the same songs and no one knew the difference. That's my story. Now about y'all? I was a jacked up dude. Okay. So, so that so that was that was my life. Where where why are we even doing this? Because the church the church is always trying to catch up to the culture, okay? But the church was founded to be the originator and propagator of a glorious culture that the anticipating creation is standing on tiptoe for. So instead of us spending time and resources looking like what we see, we have to make the transition to spending time and resources looking, sounding, and acting like what, or should I say who, the world does not see, Jesus. I should have got a lot of amens on that. It might have been too much. This starts at home. This is what I'm talking about today. This starts at home. Today, we're going to let Holy Spirit teach us how to establish, the only word I knew how to write this, how to establish a revolution. How to establish a revolution. Here's how the kingdom of God works. Don't turn there. I'm going to read just a couple of verses in Acts 1 before we go to 2 Samuel. Here's how the kingdom works. I've taught this many times before. The kingdom works inside out. Okay? Every other kingdom on planet earth works outside in. Let me give you an example. In, uh, in the ancient world, uh, when the New Testament, before the New Testament and then into the time of the New Testament, um, Rome would conquer a territory. They would send an apostle. Okay? Apostle is not a churchy term. The church took that term, but it's not a churchy term. Ironically, it's the one that none of the churches want to say. But, and it's the least churchy one of them all. But Rome would send an apostle to the newly conquered territory. And with this apostle, they would send artists, 
and teachers and business people and educators and all that. They would send those with the apostle so that this newly acquired territory could look, sound, taste, feel like Rome. So when you go to this territory, it feels like you're in the same place as any other Roman territory, right? So how did they do that? They would conquer a territory, they would establish a culture, and then over time, the people of that territory would have to evolve to adapting their life to live within the Roman culture. So outside in. Okay, culture would be established, and then at some point that would seep into the inside of you where you had to adapt to the outside culture. Does that make sense? So what the kingdom does is completely backward. That's how a lot of the church operates today. But what the kingdom does is it works from an inward reality that then begins to shine into a culture that is usually unsuspecting, And the culture begins to be transformed to the image of the one that you bear within you. Okay? So in Acts 1, Jesus is about to ascend. And listen to this kind of conversation before we go to um, 2 Samuel 6. Listen to this. Luke is writing this. And he says, to Theophilus, lover of God, I write to you again, my dear friend, to give you further details about the life of our Lord Jesus and all the things he did and taught. Just before he ascended into heaven, he left instructions for the apostles he had chosen by the Holy Spirit. After the sufferings of his cross, Jesus appeared alive many times to these same apostles over a 40-day period. Jesus proved to them with many convincing signs that he had been resurrected. During these encounters, he taught them the truths of God's kingdom realm and shared meals with him, with them. Now listen to this right here. Listen to this. Jesus instructed them, don't leave Jerusalem, but wait here until you receive the gift I told you about. <clears throat> the gift the Father has promised. For John baptized you in water, But in a few days from now, you will be baptized in the Holy Spirit. The other translation in the Aramaic is a few days from now, you will baptize in the Holy Spirit. I could could go a lot of places there, but I'm not. Just real interested to study. Every time, listen, listen to this right here. Every time they were gathered together, they asked Jesus, Lord, is it the time now for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom. What were they talking about? What they were saying was, Lord, now that you rose again, you're the only king that's died and actually rose back to life. So now that you're alive and totally incapable of tasting anything from death, is it time to go whoop some tail? That's what they're saying. That's what they're saying, right? Because Rome has taken over Israel and they are oppressing the Israelites. So they go to Jesus and say, King, son of David, is now the time for us to go get our kingdom back? They're not talking about the kingdom like we talk about the kingdom. They're talking about literally Jesus establishing a throne in Jerusalem and Israel being a free nation again. That's what they're talking about by kingdom and outside in. And this is how Jesus responds. Jesus says, 
The Father is the one who sets the fixed dates and the times of their fulfillment. You are not permitted to know the timing of all that he has prepared by his own authority. But I promise you this, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will be seized with power. And you will be my messengers to Jerusalem, throughout Judea, the distant provinces, even to the remotest places on earth. And then he ascends. Is it, is it time for us to get our kingdom back? And he says, don't worry about that, because in a few days you're going to receive power from on high to take what we, let me say it like this, to take the gift I'm about to give you to even the remotest parts of the earth. Jesus does not deflect. See, most scholars will say right there, Jesus deflected. I don't believe he deflected. I believe he was giving them a different perspective on what kind of kingdom they were inheriting. They weren't inheriting a natural kingdom of Israel. They had that before, and it did not fulfill them. This time they were inheriting an inward kingdom that would one day become so glorious that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord would cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. So today, Rome is not an issue for Israel. But it's not because they ever went to war with Rome. In fact, they got, if you fast forward to about AD 70, got beat to a pulp by Rome. The, the temple was burned. In fact, what happened in AD 70, and I'm, I'm not going to get a lot into this, fulfilled much of what the book of Revelation is written about. Again, that just felt good. So today, I, I'm going to just show you some stuff. We're, why is this relevant? Because right now, what the culture is crying out for is a fixed kingdom. Whether it be in race, whether it be in any, what we're crying out for, coronavirus, is a fixed kingdom. Lord, when are you going to come fix this kingdom? And what the Lord is showing me, and I believe what he's showing us, is that he'll fix the kingdom, but the way he's going to do it is not what we think. He's going to fix homes before he fixes kingdoms. Second Samuel 6, let me give you a little backstory. This is a very cool story that most people have never read, but it's such a cool story. Um, in uh, first, don't turn there, I'm just give you a backstory and we'll pick it up. In, in 1 Samuel 4 through 7, chapters 4 through chapter 7, the Israelites go to war against the Philistines. Uh, they get beat, and the Ark of the Covenant gets captured. I mentioned this about a month ago, if you remember any of this. Uh, it was literally, the Ark of the Covenant, was literally the intersection between God's space and man's space. The Israelites saw it as the throne, excuse me, the throne of God. So the Ark of the Covenant, if you went to an Israelite and said, what is the Ark of the Covenant? They would tell you it's the throne of God. Whoa. Where was the Ark of the Covenant? Not in heaven. Or, or was it? So the Ark of the Covenant and the temple were the intersection between heaven and earth. If you want an idea of what on earth as it is in heaven looks like, you all, all you have to do is look at the Holy of Holies in the temple. 
that's on earth as it is in heaven, where Yahweh is enthroned and a pure man is allowed to step into the moment where Yahweh is enthroned and have a conversation back and forth on earth as it is in heaven. Amazing. Okay. So uh, the Israelites go to war against the Philistines. The ark is captured at Ebenezer. And I'm just giving you the names of these towns in case you want to go back and study later. The ark is captured at the town of Ebenezer, and it's taken to Ashdod, where it's placed in the house of Dagon, the Philistine false god, where the idol twice falls face down before the ark of the covenant. Does anybody else remember me uh, teaching this? Okay, yeah, yeah. So they, they take the ark of the covenant, they place it in the temple for their false god, Dagon. They put it there, they come back the next morning and the false god is literally fallen face down before the ark of the covenant. So they sit it back up, come back the next day, it's fallen face down and this time I believe its head's cut off. So they say, <laughs> this ain't good. And then all of a sudden, everybody in town starts getting tumors and mice start spreading across the city. Now, here's the thing. If a mice starts running through this room, I'm going to be running out of this room. I'm not cool with that. I don't, like, I don't do mice and I definitely don't do rats. Amen, amen right? <laughs> like a little girl that day, y'all were helping me clean. <laughs> but, um, Okay, so he sends this, and they say, y'all, we don't want this. So then they send it to Gath, same thing happens. Then they send it to Ekron, same thing happens. Then they send it back into Israelite territory to Beth Shemesh. And then finally, it comes to rest at Kiriath-Jerina, where it rests for 20 years. So it stays in that city for 20 years, okay? And this is where 2 Samuel 6 picks up the story, okay? So, I mean, it's, it's amazing. The Bible was written over thousands and thousands of years and the continuity. I mean, we're talking about a whole nother book later. 2 Samuel compared to 1 Samuel picks up the story like it never left it off. Unbelievable, okay? So, 2 Samuel 6, David is now king over Israel. He just has been anointed king over Israel in chapter 5. And the Philistines have just been defeated by David, okay? So the same Philistines that took the ark before uh, David has just defeated. All right, so 2 Samuel 6, I'm just going to read. Uh, I won't tell you how many verses. So, because um, if I do that, some of you aren't going to follow along. Here we go. A few. 6 verse 1, David gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. David and all the people with him set out and went from Baal Judah, which is another, just another name for uh, Kiriath-Jerim, where it came to rest for 20 years. Okay, So uh, went out from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. Let me get this Bible out of the way. Okay. <clears throat> they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought, brought it to the house of Abinab. Abinadab. Abinadab. There you go. Which was on the hill of Uzzah 
and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went in front of the ark. David and all the house of Israel were dancing before the Lord with all their might, with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nikon, Uzzah reached out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen shook it. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him there because he reached out his hand to the ark, and he died there beside the ark of God. Now, what's about to happen is very interesting. Listen to this. David was angry because the Lord had burst forth with an outburst upon Uzzah. So that place is called Perez Yuza to this day. David was afraid, this, these next two verses, listen. David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come into my care? So David was unwilling to take the ark of the Lord into his care in the city of David. David was unwilling to take the ark to the city of David. Instead, David took it to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all of his household. Has anybody ever read this story? Okay, unbelievable. It was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed an ox and fatling. David danced before the Lord with all his might. David was girded with a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, uh, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. They brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and offerings of well-being before the Lord. When David had finished offering the burnt offerings, I'm almost done, and the offerings of well-being, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed food among the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, to each a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins. Then all the people went back to their homes. David sets out to bring the ark which is the throne of God, the, the, the representation of the presence of God. He sets out to bring the ark 
to the city of David, which is Jerusalem, which is also Zion. Okay, let me say it like this. David, the beloved, sets out to establish the throne of God in Zion. Yuza touches it and dies because of its holiness. Yuza means strength. That's what the name means. The name means strength. One who is strong. Okay? So strength, I'm about to teach y'all something so cool, touches the holiness of the throne and dies. When I'm weak, then I'm strong. His power is made perfect in my weakness. In verse 9 and 10, David is afraid because of fear he was unwilling to take the ark back to, to Jerusalem. Now, why was David afraid? Hang with me. I know it's 1130. Hang with me. David was afraid because of what he had seen the ark of the Lord do moments before. Let me say it like this. For fear of what it might cost him, he rejected the original call, which was to enthrone Yahweh in Zion. He sees Yuzadah and he says, this thing might take my life. I don't want this. I'm good with what we're doing. Kill Goliath. With a stone, let's just keep doing that. If we're not careful, ironically, I didn't, we didn't even plan this, but we've never sang, I don't think I'm no longer a slave. Have we ever sang, sang that? This is the first time today. And uh, ironically, this is exactly what the Lord has been showing me. And fear will keep us from enthroning Yahweh in places where he desires to be enthroned. Fear. Well, what if, what if it costs me my job? What if it costs me family members? What if it costs me church members? What if it costs me money? Hello? What if it costs me, hey, what if it costs me my calling? What if it costs me my prophetic words that people spoke over me when I was a kid? And what we'll do is we'll begin to back away from the only thing we're actually ever called to. This is the same David that made the statement, one thing I desire and this shall I seek the rest of my life to dwell in the house of the Lord forever and gaze upon the beauty of his face. The same David. The same David who wrote Psalm 23, the same David who said, you lifted me up out of the miry pit and set my feet on a rock, gave me a new song and a new foundation. Same David, the same beloved one that, that his father Jesse didn't even bring to meet Samuel because he was nothing in the family. And the Lord saw that he was nothing and said, because you're nothing to them, I'm going to make you everything to me. Same David. In one moment of fearing what might happen if the ark got too close to his home, instead sends it somewhere else. So instead of going to the political capital, the ark ends up in the home of, listen to this, of a Philistine 
named Obed-Edom. Where did this whole story start out? In 1 Samuel, where the Philistines captured the ark. David fears and sends it to the house of a Philistine defector, a Philistine that has joined David at this point, and the ark of the covenant of Yahweh is in somebody's living room. Let me put it this way. Uzzah touched it and immediately dies. That same ark is now sitting on somebody's dresser for three months. David goes back home, leaves the ark of the covenant of the Lord in Obed-Edom's house. And for three months, the Lord blesses everything he does and everyone in his household. What does the name Obed-Edom mean? Obed-Edom means servant of Edom. Okay? I don't know how many of y'all remember when I taught on Jacob and Esau. The... the um, the word, the people, Edom, Edomites, are descendants from Esau. The word Edom is a variant of the word Adam. Okay? Adam, Edom is a variant of the word Adam. Listen to this, okay? So the throne of God is on its way to the most influential place that it could possibly go, Jerusalem. The political capital of the whole kingdom of Israel, God's exclusive people at this point. On the way, the king fears and sends it to the house that is the servant of Adam. Yeah, are you, are you, okay. While it's there, the Lord begins to lavish blessings on this man, Obed-Edom. He begins to take the servant of Adam and teach him what it's like for the throne of God to be where he serves instead. It, let me say it like this. If the throne of God is in your living room, let me tell you what you're not a servant of, anything but that throne. So in a moment, he goes from servant of Adam, and you can take that as far as you want to go, to servant of the throne of God that is in his living room for three months. I was thinking about this last night as I was writing these notes. Do you know this week, do you know how long it's been since our last service before the whole coronavirus thing? Three months. Three months this week. And I wonder, see, when, when all of this... Uh, uh, coronavirus stuff. Ironically, that's all gone now. I mean, people aren't even talking about coronavirus anymore. Um, it's like overnight, just disappeared. Um, but that's a joke. But anyway, when we went into this coronavirus season, see, I was excited. Like, I, lo I love church. I love church. 
But the thought of this going to our homes made me ecstatic. I had no issue with it. It was like, we might just close church for two months just for the fun of it. You know what I mean? This is just a great, great excuse to do so. So we do that, and you start seeing people. Well, brother, we, I don't know, but you, you better be ready to get, give your life thrown in jail for having church. I'm like, nope, I'm having church. I don't know about you. I'm having church. But you wouldn't, you wouldn't believe how angry people got when we shut the doors. Angry, angry. Call me devil. It's been done before. People should come up with a new name. Like, it's not even original anymore. Call me something else. But <laughs> I think it's fun now. Right? I mean, pe- people angry. Why? Because I believe subconsciously we're afraid if this ever got in our homes, it would cost us what we are not ready to give up. So as long as it can remain at church at a distance and we only have to entertain it once a week, we're good. But the moment that it comes through the threshold of our house and it becomes the reality we live in on a day-to-day basis, most people aren't ready for what that will cost them because it's cost us everything that we held on to before this. And let me tell you something. We're beginning to experience a glory like I never knew was even possible to experience because the ark is resting in my living room. He is enthroned upon my house. And if he could ever get enthroned upon all of our houses, we would begin to see something corporately that is nothing but an addition of all the houses where he's been enthroned, thrown together. And in this room, we would actually start to see what it looked like when that priest would step into the Holy of Holies and Yahweh would take a seat on his throne. Can you imagine that? It was such a fear-filled moment that they had to tie bells to them so that if they died, they could drag them out. Right? What, what would happen if a bunch of redeemed people got in a room and Yahweh just came and sat right on the throne of our praises and we began to talk? What would happen? It could happen. It has happened. Acts 2, hello. Right? What, what would it take? It's going to take us reversing what we see as revival. Okay. <clears throat> we keep... We keep looking. Let me say, let me say this, and then let me, let me go to my notes. The Lord was enthroned in a home before being enthroned in a place of influence. And it's, the the Lord was enthroned in a house before being enthroned in a place of influence. We want in man. We want influence. That's all we want. Influence. Influence, influence, influence. And he's saying, you better get to the place where he influences you before you ever reach for any kind of influence for yourself. He's looking, I I just, I feel the Lord, he's looking for homes. He is not looking for influence. If he can get homes, he'll have influence. He's looking for houses. He's looking for moms and dads who are willing to teach their kids what it looks like to walk in the cool of the day with Yahweh once again. That's what he's looking for. He's not looking for preachers who can preach fire. 
How do you, I don't even know if that, like, how do you even do this? You know what I'm saying? He's not looking for a church, for a preacher who can preach fire or a preacher who can, who can rack up so many rewards because they're traveling all the time and yet their family is dying for some attention. That's not what he's looking for. I, ouch. I, I'm just telling you, as an apostolic father, he's not looking for somebody who can be the best traveling uh, musician or preacher or evangelist. He's looking for someone who's willing to be rooted in the home no matter what it takes so your kids can inherit what they were designed to inherit from you. If people in my church are inheriting more from me than my daughter, I have royally messed up. But that's what we've done. That's what we've settled for. As long as I can trick everybody in the congregation to think that I look like what I say, that's all that matters. And I'm telling you, I don't care if I look like what I say. Y'all don't have to believe it. My daughter, however, has to grow up knowing that dad was so in love with Jesus, I refused to settle for anything other than what he had. We keep looking for revival fire to blow through America, but I wonder if we haven't seen that yet because he's looking for some homes to be revived first. What to this day keeps Yahweh from being enthroned in our midst? Fear. We've spent so many years without him being enthroned in our nation, that fear of what might die if he got too close keeps us from giving him back his throne. I wrote this this morning. Fear is the problem, but it's also the answer. We can fear, let me say it like this. We can fear what might die if Yahweh was actually enthroned upon us, or we can, fear of the, we can fear the ramifications of what might happen if he doesn't get enthroned in us. One of those to me is a lot more scary. If our, if our country doesn't change, and by change, I mean enthrone Yahweh on his rightful seat, if our country doesn't do that, we are heading into about, three or four more decades from now, a country that wants nothing to do with God. We're already really close. Because what the people around us are saying is, is if what all y'all have, not us, but just America, if what all y'all have is, is Christianity, keep it. And let me say something, I agree. If, that, if that's what the following the Lord thing looks like, keep it. I'm a lot happier here. Y'all are all still in bondage. I'm still in bondage. You're all struggling with the same stuff. I'm still struggling with the same stuff. You all are still struggling with racism. We're all still struggling with racism. You're all still supporting abortion because you don't want to talk about it because you don't want to step on toes because you think people are going to leave your church. We support abortion. So, like, there's really no difference. Why repeat a prayer? And that, see that, and that's what's happening. Unless we could become so glorious that the culture begin to look at us and say, those people are free. Those people are happy. Those people are full of joy. Those people are full of peace. And I am not any of those. So I want what they got. Do you see the difference? 
We could spend the rest of our lives going after all these religious things, or we could spend the rest of our lives being so glorious that with a word we can end things that it took hundreds and hundreds of years of fighting to end. I'm a, next week, I'm going to start talking about Esther. And let me just, get, let me just give you a little, little taste into that. E- Esther, Esther was arguably the greatest warrior of the whole Old Testament. She saved the entire nation of Israel. And you know how she did it? Not by swinging a sword. By whispering to the king. So, I'm like, Josh, I'm, man, I'm just really going through spiritual warfare and all that stuff. If you, if you could ever get close enough to the king, all you need to do is whisper. The whole nation of Israel is about to be slaughtered on gallows that have been built up, and Esther has the courage, walks up to the king, and whispers in the ear of the king, and the entire country is saved. I wonder if how we end racism and how we end all this other stuff is, listen, is not by fighting and fighting and fighting. We should be letting our voices heard, to be clear. But the way that we let Jesus fix all of this stuff, I wonder if it's us being so enthroned, him being so enthroned on us that we are in such proximity that we can say, now end racism. One of those takes a lot less work. One of those will cost you everything. And they're both the same. Imagine that. What, what if we had so, what if we were in such a place with Jesus that we could do that? Because we should be. What if we were in such a place with Jesus that we see injustice and we say, you know what? Not here. Taken care of. If, if cancer can leave based off a word, I, I just choose to believe racism can leave off of a word. If, if I mean, we, we have, let me say, Lord, help us. We have more faith to believe that type one, stage one cancer can go than stage four cancer. If you're praying, with, praying over somebody with stage one cancer, you got a lot more faith that they're going to be healed in stage four. Why? Because one of those is really close to death and one of those probably isn't going to end in death. Okay, okay, right? Why? Because what we do is not operate off intimacy because intimacy, intimacy sees everything as nothing is impossible. Instead, we do it off of religion, which says, if it's very hard, my mask may not be able to take it. So you know what he's going to do. He's going to be enthroned in some homes until those homes become so glorious, the kings of the world have no choice but to enthrone him in kingdoms. What happens then? Revelation 11 tells us, the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Messiah. What happens after that? Jesus returns to reign in his kingdom. Where does it all begin? Home. Home. Jesus can't be the answer to racism in the world until he's the answer to racism in our homes.
Genesis 8 talks about seed time and harvest. As long as the world is doing its thing, there's always going to be seed time and harvest. Genesis 8. All right. What happens is, is in the home, a seed is planted. And over time, as that seed begins to grow, it begins to bear fruit in the world around you. But we despise the day of small beginnings, especially in our generation. And the day of small beginnings is where the seed is tested in the first place. He, he loves this enough to not let 10,000 people show up right now. He is so in love with this place that he refuses to let 10,000 people show up next week. Because it ain't our time. We have a lot to learn. We've got a lot of places to grow. Here's what the Lord showed me. I almost brought my journal out this week, this, uh, this week, but he said, I'm raising your, talking about the church, level of influence and your voice. But because I love you, I'm about to hide you like you've never been hidden before. And I've been doing this long enough to say, praise the Lord. See, back in my earlier days, I would have said, man, you've got to be kidding me. I've already done this hiding thing. Time to show the world, you know? And, and I, I, what he's doing, he, so, he is so jealous over you that he'll hide you as long as it takes. So he'll hide the ark of his presence in a home of a Philistine, not even an Israelite. He'll hide the ark of his presence in the home of a Philistine. Why? Because he's so jealous over Israel, he refuses to let them taste what they're not ready to taste yet. So there's a man who is obviously ready to taste it. I don't know what that conversation had to be like. But when David comes to your house and they're carrying a dead man who just touched this ark with them, and he says, hey, Obed, Adam, my dude, we're going to have to leave this at your house. I don't, the Bible doesn't tell us what that conversation was like. I would suspect, at least in the beginning, as he's looking at a dead user, he's saying, I don't know about this. Whatever the case may be, however they convinced him, Maybe they held a sword to his neck. I don't know. However they convinced him, the ark remained in his home. In some way, shape, or form, Obed-Edom was in a place to receive the throne of God. How do we know this? Because he and his family didn't die. They were blessed because of the ark. And the only way that could happen is if you were in such a pure place that the presence of God didn't kill you. It killed people that were high priest. And now it's in the home of a Philistine. And it's not just avoiding death with them. It's blessing everything their hands touch. And so he's giving us access to see that in that moment, a man that none of Israel probably even knew He's a Philistine. He had defected, but he's not a full-blooded Israel. Therefore, he probably would have been rejected in their culture. So it's in a home completely hidden from the very people it was even there for. Then David, Lord, I got to figure out what I'm going to do with this chair. The, let me say this. The ark was at a house of Obed-Edom for three months. 
I said this earlier. Next week will be three months since our last service pre-coronavirus. Could Yahweh be telling us something? Home is the new spark point for revival. It won't be fiery services that starts this new revolution. It'll be fathers and mothers, sons and daughters, so convinced of his goodness that they allow him to be enthroned in their midst. In those three months, everything and everyone obed Edom in Obed-Edom's house prospered. Matthew 6, Jesus said this, and I wonder if he was thinking about this very story. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and everything else will be given to you. In other words, if Yahweh's enthroned upon your heart, don't worry about anything else. He'll give you everything you need. Last page. Y'all good? Y'all wait? I mean, because I can go three more out. No, I'm just kidding. <clears throat> Here's where this gets interesting. Here's where this gets interesting. When David hears, now remember, why didn't they make it to Jerusalem? Fear. When David hears how blessed Obed-Edom's household is, he then sends for the ark to be brought to Jerusalem. David, King David, the David we all talk about, the the one that Jesus was called son of, son of David, more than any other name. David hears that Obed-Edom's household is flourishing. And he says, well, now that I've seen that, I think it's time to bring that thing home. Okay? Okay. Don't, so don't, don't skip over that just as a little thing. Let me hear what I'm telling you. A house became such a place of divine prosperity that the king, seeing the glory of the house, decides, I'm going to enthrone what's in one home in the political, influential capital of Jerusalem. One home's glory gives one king access to bringing that home's glory into the whole of a nation. Are y'all hearing this? One home's glory became the glory of an entire nation. Why? Why? Not because Obedi Dom was over here posting on social media. Y'all, check this out. The Ark of the Covenant. You know what I'm saying? You ever think about if like Bible times have happened today? Somebody asked me one time if Jesus had internet because he could make whatever he wanted to. And I was like, That's, if you're thinking about that, you're wasting your time. Um, <laughs> somebody also asked me if there would be internet in heaven. That's, I don't know. That's a really good question. Um, probably not, though. But <laughs> definitely won't be social media. But anyway, one home, Obedi Dom is not over here just, you know, like, you know, just telling people, y'all, Ark of the Covenant is here, blah, blah, blah. One home being rooted and consistent in what he does over and over, day in and day out, caught the attention of a king and caused the king to drown out every fear that kept him from that same place before to bring what was in that home here to Jerusalem, to Zion. I wonder, Daniel, you can go ahead and come up here. I wonder, I wonder, if the glory that could begin to flow 
from our relationship with Jesus in the secret place when no one is looking could become the progenitor of true revival in America, not the other way around. This is the 2020 vision. We've tried the corporate thing where we had events, special guests, prayer nights, revivals, stadium gatherings, etc. However, America keeps turning further and further away from God. I contend it's because Yahweh was never actually enthroned on America. The gatherings were an attempt to plead for God to take over America. Every gathering. What I hear the Lord saying is he wants to take over you and your home and our homes until we become so glorious, kingdoms will trade it all to have a taste of what we have learned to extravagantly host. In you, as it is in heaven, is the necessary first step to on earth as it is in heaven. In you, as it is in heaven, is the necessary first step to on earth as it is in heaven. Remember Acts 1. Lord, when will it be time? Is it time now for you to restore our kingdom? And he says, don't worry about it because in a few days, I'm gonna send you a gift that will cause you to forget about Israel and it'll cause you to start focusing on heaven. I read this last night. The Lord gave me Acts 1 about Thursday and... um. And I prayed over it and prayed over it and prayed over it and prayed over it. And just, I just sat in Acts 1. And then yesterday, we were at the beach. And right before we left to come home, he began to speak this, this Obed-Edom thing to me. And, um, and so I sat in our dining room. Everybody was asleep until last night, till almost midnight. And um, was just writing all these notes. I had some other stuff planned. All these notes. And let me tell y'all something. This is this has been um, this has been a week. Um, this week we've had to prove in a lot of ways everything that we've ever said we actually believe. This week. And what, what I'm specifically talking about is legacy. When when you are if, if you're doing things for temporary success, you're going to do things as soft and as non-toe-steppy as possible. I totally made up that. Okay? Right? If, if you're doing things for the immediate, you're not going to step on toes and you're going to be soft so that the majority of people will be okay with what's going on. But if you're in this 
for our great, 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 great grandkids to be hosting something that we couldn't even dream of hosting today. You're going to make some decisions that are going to be hard. It's going to cause people to leave you. It's going to cause people to have their toes stepped on. But all of it is in the name of legacy. This cannot end with us. This cannot end with us. So Josh, why are you talking about racism? Why not just avoid it and at some point it'll go away? Why do you keep talking about it? Because if I'm trying to do something immediate, I'll scoot it under the rug and let somebody else deal with it. But if I'm in this for your kids and your kids and your kids and your kids and your kids to not have to deal with this anymore, I'm going to make decisions that people do not like today for the life to the full that our kids will have tomorrow. That's why this legacy thing, I kept asking God why all of 2020, it seemed like we just kept coming back to legacy, 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 legacy. In fact, I had a few people say, Josh, do you even care about what's going on now? Because it seems like all you talk about is the next generation. Me talking about the next generation is me caring what's going on now. Josh, it seems like all you talk about is how the rapture's fake. Yes. You know why? Because if this is the place he's coming to reign, racism and every other injustice has got to go first. It does. So this has not been an easy week. And I'm really thankful for the people who have, who have said they're proud of us for touching this topic. I'm really thankful for you. And I've got to give some credit to somebody like Ellington. He's sitting in the back. I've never, ever, I've been around some leaders. I've been around some of the best leaders in the world, I guess, my whole life. I've never seen somebody lead like Ellington led this week. Ever. Ever. About to cry. Y'all, our worship leader, our worship leader is a leader. And he's, he's made decisions this week that I'm telling you, I, I told him this last week. I, I just see the Lord allowing us to inherit a vision of a nation where his kids don't have to worry about what he has to deal with. And your kids, and your kids, and your kids. Like, what if our kids actually grew up and none of them ever had to protest anything because none of it existed? That's not where we are, but it's where we're going. And the only way we're going to get there is for him to be so enthroned in our homes and in our churches and in our lives that we have such a level of intimacy with him that we can whisper things and nations crumble. That our whisper can be more powerful than the entire force of the United States Army. Jesus could have fixed everything with a word. He created everything with a word. He could have, before he got on the cross, stood up and said, Rome, it's over, and all of them die. How do I know this? Because when they come to find Jesus, he says, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus. He says, I am he, and they all hit the ground. So Jesus had all authority to stand up on a mountain and say, it's done, and nations just crumble. But he didn't do that. 
He didn't do that. What was he doing? What was he doing? He was allowing us to inherit the throne. And as we begin to inherit the throne, we're going to look so much like him that our words will begin to carry something. I believe he didn't whisper some of that stuff because he was waiting for us to do it. Greater things you will do. All who believe in me will do the works I do and greater works is what he said in the book of John. What are the greater works? Cessationists will tell you it's repeated prayers. If that's greater works, shut it down. Getting a million people to repeat a prayer is not the greatest works. Being in such a place with him that you can whisper and things in that have been around for 400 years, that's what I call greater works. So we're in a new era. We're in a new era. The Lord showed me that the back half of 2020, we're going to inherit everything we thought we were going to inherit for the entire year of 2020. But the first step to that was showing us what was behind the mask. Now that we've seen behind the mask, he can actually give us beauty for ashes. You can't inherit stuff wearing a mask, but if you take it off, he'll make you so beautiful, you'll reject the mask the rest of your life. So I'm going to pray, and, um, and then we'll be done. And I don't know, Ellington, I don't know if you have anything. I just called you out. So, um, But I'm going to pray, y'all. We're, we're, hang, let me say this. If you stick around long enough, you're going to see something nobody in history has ever seen. Mark my words right now. You stick around long enough and we'll see stuff that Acts 2 people only dreamed of seeing. Thanks for listening to this podcast. For more information on Dream Church or to give, visit dreamcolumbia.com. We hope you have a great week.